Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Babies in Common show. I'm Jeanette. And I'm Melissa. Welcome, listeners. So today's show, we're going to be speaking about postpartum care with Arlene Lammy. And Arlene's a birth and postpartum doula with her own company, New Wave Perinatal Services. And she comes to birth work with a teaching background in education. She studied secondary education at Syracuse University and then pursued teaching and early childhood education. She taught in various preschools and education centers for over five years and led classroom teams as a certified infant toddler teacher, which I can only imagine how valuable that is as a postpartum doula first. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, um, but she came to birth work in a surprising way. She was fortunate enough to be welcomed to witness the birth of her nephew in 2017. And she's going to share more about that with us today. Very exciting. Arlene is a full circle birth companion trained by Shafia Monroe Birthing Change Consulting and has a keen appreciation for postpartum care that centers traditional African-American midwifery practices, which will be some of the focus of our discussion with her today. She was raised by her West Indian immigrant parents on the motto, it takes a village. And she carries this principle throughout her work with new families. Arlene is also a Reiki 2 practitioner and offers holistic energy support. She resides in Essex County. And we are so excited to have her today with us. And just as a reminder, anything that we talk about in our show today should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult your own care provider for questions about you or your baby's health and visit babiesincommon.com slash disclaimer to learn more. And without further ado, thank you, Arlene, for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you guys. So let's hear a little bit more more about you. So we said in our intro, you got inspired to go into doula work after witnessing the birth of your nephew, which is huge when a relative asks you to be there, which is really cool. How old were you at the time? I was 24 turning 25. And had you like, like, did she know you were interested in birth or she wanted extra support? Like how'd that come about? It was so serendipitous. Um, I was always the baby person in my family, like had been babysitting and again, funny because I was the baby of my sister. (laughs) Um, And I think just loved infants and loved my job. And I was teaching full time at a preschool then. And when my sister got pregnant, um, yeah, we were talking about when the baby comes and when I would be an auntie and, and, and that, and we have an older sister Um, that I have a very large age gap with. So I didn't really get to participate in her kids being babies. So I was particularly excited for this baby coming. Um, But no, we never, we never talked about birth and we never even talked about like her providers. And I never, I never asked questions about what does your midwife say? I mean, I asked, are you seeing a midwife? That was like the first question I asked. Um, Because you already knew midwives were a good thing. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And had a strong feeling. I think my like pull also was for my sister to have really great like feminine maternal care because we had already lost our mom at that point. Mm. Um, My mom had died seven years ago at that point. And so I really felt like, okay, this is a world that I'm a little bit associated with, but I'm not a mom. I haven't been pregnant. You need somebody that knows this. And so like midwifery care for me, yeah, was definitely the first thing I wanted her to know about, but no, we had never talked about like actual birth. Wow. And so you got to go to her birth and she had a four day labor, um, induction, which is not that uncommon anymore, unfortunately. So what was that moment that you were like, oh my gosh, I have to get into this birth world of, for working. Um, it was the moment that the midwife looked at me and said, Hey, come here. And 
at this point in my sister's induction, we had met the entire maternal team. <laughs> After four days, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So every midwife had been on rotation. Um, all of the attending OBs had been. And there was no like emergency, but obviously like all the nurses had come in and everybody was like, she was known on the floor. And like everybody <laughs> kind of was like, oh, we want to be at this birth now. Um, and I think just the way things had been going and because it was not something I was familiar with, I was really gatekeeping. Like I was just so at like, I didn't, I didn't want my sister to be upset. I didn't want my brother-in-law to be upset. And they had so many people that were looking out for them and being really great. But I just, you know what I mean? There was this like unspoken thing for me that I was like, somebody has to be there for them that knows them. And- I, I remember that feeling. I, I was with my sister during her labor and birth and that, that protect protective factor. Like you want to make a cocoon around them (laughs) and keep them safe. And I think something about when you get into the hospital, right? Because in all the weeks before her birth had come up, this, the induction also, I should preface is like, it kind of happened very quickly, like the decision Mm -hmm. to have one. So we went from, I had planned her baby shower and we knew what was going to happen. And I remember thinking like, oh, if she gives birth on like a Monday, I'll have to take the day off or something. That that plan suddenly just went out the window and it was like, I have to be there for all of it. And so when the midwife said to me, I, <laughs> when I was asked to stay was super special and I was kind of just shocked because I also was like, oh, what do I do now? Um, so I was, they were in a really nice, one of the larger rooms. So I was in a chair and like was actually pretty comfortable. And because of everything that had happened, it, I didn't even realize oh, this is going to be the moment now. And I have to give my sister a shout out. She's such a champ. Uh, she pushed for 25 minutes. So again, I wow, was awesome. still thinking this was going to be hours, right? Mm. So w- I'm sitting in the chair and I'm just like looking at all the machines and, you know, kind of just my brother-in-law and my sister having their moment. And um, the midwife goes, okay, come here. And I'm like, she's like yeah no you like auntie come here and I'm like me and she's like yeah that's the head and I like peek over and I literally see the baby crowning and just one more push and he came out and he was pink and there were legs and I just bursted into tears and it was like indescribable like emotions I had never felt ways my heart had never twanged and even to this day, my sister and my brother-in-law actually still laugh at me because <laughs> they were so relieved and they were so happy. And I was like a puddle. Like <laughs> I was like crying and not like, oh, this is like crying, crying. <laughs> the tissue, like probably should have excused myself. <laughs> um, but then, you know, again, I was like laser focused though, because of course, like my brother-in-law and the nurses and now everyone's with the baby. And I'm right. like, my sister, my sister, my sister. Did you even know what a doula was at this point? I did, but I had a different understanding of doulas. Um, I didn't, I really did think that doulas had medical training and I thought that they were more aligned to like nurse assistants, but just for like labor and delivery. Okay. And, and I knew that there were people who were doulas like part-time. So my understanding from like traditional midwifery care and like modern day doulas, I figured, oh, th- this is like a role of people who don't want to be nurses full-time or people who don't want to work in any other rotation, right? Like are mm. only interested in labor and delivery, uh, but still have like a certain type of 
schooling or traditional medical training. That yeah. was what I had thought in the past. Yeah. But you had the instinct to, to, as they say, mother, the mother in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, he was beautiful and I was enthralled, but I also remember like looking at my sister the entire time she was getting repairs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and granted she only had like a first degree tear. Um, but again, I, I think I was the only person in the room who even cared about the placenta. Cause I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, and again, in a very traditional Caribbean culture, I had heard my mother, I heard my dad talk about placentas my whole life. Wow. Um, and you know, which I, I can admit, I know the term afterbirth is not really appropriate, but that's what it was called in my family. And mm -hmm. that's how people mm -hmm. referred to it in the Caribbean. Um, so again, I, I knew what it was, but I had never seen one and, and, and didn't, and again, had had so many kind of like funny stories from my aunt and my mother and my grandmother about how placentas were delivered, but had never seen one delivered, obviously. So that kind of was like a, a new fascinating thing for me because like, right. As a woman, you're like, okay, I, I get my period. I I've bled before. I, I know what kind of things happen in my vulva area, mm -hmm. but I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh, this is a whole organ. Okay, here we go. Right, right. This is a whole organ and nobody is giving it justice because like what other organs come out of our bodies after they just like do a job? Like, right? I was just like looking at that dish for five minutes like, yeah. Oh, th that that's it. This is that. Okay. Okay. It sounds cool. to me like you were born to do this job. I feel like you have <laughs> If you're, if you're enthralled with placentas, you're meant to be in this work. Um, yeah, that actually, it was, it was no, just oh, funny oh. because they asked my sister like, oh, do you have any plans for this? And she was like, no, thanks. And I was like, I want to see, I have more questions. <laughs> I might have plans. <laughs> and so, just for the record, like it's your sister knows you talk about her birth and how many, like how her repair went and all the details you might share. Yes, she does. Um, she definitely knows I talk about her birth and she tells my nephew often, he's three and a half now. So I think it's very endearing for my family because again, this wasn't something that like was planned or like had been a lifelong dream. And so um, I think for my sister, yeah, it's, I, I think she gets a little bit of like a confidence boost out of it. Certainly that she's like, oh, great. I inspired you to have this wonderful career. Oh. Um we joke when we text about it she, and I will say to her like, oh, I'm talking about Christian and, you know, an interview and she'll be like, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Send um, my check. <laughs> yeah, basically, I know. I, I, I'm sure she's going to ask for rights and royalties one day. Um, but yeah, she does know. And I think that again, she's really understanding of the fact that like this conversation doesn't happen enough. Yeah. Um, mm. and I certainly think again, right. Like looking at perspectives of women, she doesn't want to do what I do and she doesn't necessarily want to tell this story all the time, but she's aware of how important it is for the story to be told. Mm. Right? It's so true. I mean, that, that actually brings me to right into our next question really well, because the fact that your family even talked about placentas is not something that's traditional in American culture, unless your mother or your, you know, uh, father is a birth worker in, in some way. Right. So my mother always jokes like, you, you know, when, when my oldest was going to go to kindergarten, she's like, you better be careful. Whatever he brings for show and tell better not be related to your line of work. <laughs> like 
this is a speculum. My mommy uses it to open people's vaginas, you know, <laughs> um, because we are very open in, in my family. And as, as I feel it should be, I feel like the research is very supportive of, of speaking matter of factly about, you know, human bodily experiences, including birth and menstruation and all of these things to young children. Um, but it is not culturally normal with our puritanical roots to do mm. so in this country. So uh, in April of this year, you were a featured speaker for a panel discussion hosted by the Boston-based wellness collective, You Good Sis, entitled The Joy in Black Birth. This event was actually how we first met, quote unquote, I, I attended and, and was enthralled with your discussion of, around the cultural differences in how your West Indian family approached life events such as puberty, pregnancy, birth, postpartum time, et cetera, you know, versus the modern, quote, American way of approaching things. So you, of course, have a unique perspective on this topic because while your parents were immigrants you were primarily raised in the United States is that correct yes so yes. let's take these topics one at a time how did your experiences with puberty or quote woman issues say differ from like your American I know you're American but like your you know I guess white American friends that yeah, didn't have yeah. immigrant parents <laughs> no it's it's so important to talk about and I I love that also Jeanette you asked about Essex County because just for listeners' views, I, I don't mind sharing. I grew up in Swampscott, um, which is predominantly white and predominantly Jewish. Um, and so like the gap culturally actually wasn't always so large because a lot of my Jewish friends had families that physically operated the way my family did, right? Like oh, very were, interesting. were very large, had a lot of cultural events, had like family nearby, had a lot of support in that way. And so maybe the topics were very different, but that was very aligned. Like my parents very easily like hosted the same kind of events as like my Jewish friends' parents did. And, and right. Like all my Jewish friends were like, my mom will feed you all afternoon. And I was like, great. <laughs> my mom will feed you all afternoon. Um, but in terms of, yeah, the topics around womanhood, I, I was aware from the time I was little about my female body and my vulva and that I would have breasts one day. Um, and you know, my mom told me probably when I was nine or 10, um, you know, you'll have your period and this is what will happen. My mom had her, her first period at 11. My sister did as well. And I was told that story and my sister and I are 11 years apart. So, excuse me, six years apart. So knowing that there would be this like transition and again, having a teenage sibling when I was still an adolescent, um, my, my parents just were so open, like, and, and similar to you, Melissa, like, you know, they didn't, they didn't have conversations with my sister that they sent me away for. Mm -hmm. So even in terms of like sexuality and when my sister started dating or she had friends that came out to my parents before they came mm -hmm. out to their parents, I was like mm -hmm. allowed to be in the room for that. Um, and when I say allowed, I just mean, I wasn't dismissed. Sure. <laughs> Nobody was like, Hey, come learn about this. But also like, <laughs> didn't say you should leave now. Right. Um, so I, <laughs> when I started, my period was really funny. I was at a friend's house for a sleepover and, you know, I went to the bathroom and I realized I had my period. That's like every teenager's nightmare though. Yes. <laughs> well, and you know, what's so funny. I, I mean, I guess this relates to my whole story and like, huh. to give my parents credit. So I came out and I told my friend, <laughs> I'll never forget. So I said to her, <laughs> I think I just got my period. And she goes, you could have a baby now. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's like for a long time. And so <laughs> I don't think it's 
coming out now. <laughs> right, right. She had a teenage sister as well. So she told her sister first and her sister told their mother. So then her mother came downstairs and talked to us and was like, okay, honey, like, and I could tell she, she was like so excited, but didn't want to embarrass me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, do you want to call your mom? Do you, I'll drive you home. Do you, are you, how are you feeling? And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll call my mom. And so I called my mom and my sister answered the phone and that like twin telepathy that people talk about, there was like that mm-hmm. female telepathy, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. She just heard it in my voice or whatever, or maybe because I never called home from a sleepover before, but I was like, Oh, where's mom? And she was like, what's the matter? And I was like, (laughs) where's mom? And she was like, why? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, can I talk to our mother? Like what? And like, I'm 11 years old, like in the fifth grade. (laughs) And my sister's like, did you get your period? You got your period. Mom, Marlene got her period. (laughs) And like that, that was my family. You know what I mean? And for some people, while that would be like so embarrassing and really upsetting, right? Like I was used to that kind of interaction and kind Mm -hmm. of having that. And, and yeah, my mom got on the phone and I always think about this now that I, I feel bad for her that I didn't go home. She was so excited and she was like, do you want to come home? I'll take you up for ice cream. And I was like, I'm just going to stay here. I just thought you should know. Um, and so the, and then, and then for weeks, my grandmother called and my aunt started calling. And every time someone in my family happened to call and I answered the phone, it was like, oh, congratulations. <laughs> woman now. And like my aunts had a whole thing, like they were like, oh, this summer we're going to take, cause they, they live across the, the States. So like it, it, it was, it was celebratory. Mm. Um, which is nice because although I did have some of that, like typical, embarrassment and I was kind of like oh why'd you tell everybody I was also like oh this is nice because everybody gets it and Mm. And I'm treating me special like you know uh, I want to do special things with me because of this and as the baby in the family I finally felt like I wasn't the baby anymore Mm -hmm. like I got to be in like the big girls club (laughs) 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 it was like truly all my female cousins my mother my grandmother all six of my biological aunts like (laughs) Everybody That's knew. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of talk. Well, Marcy's probably going to have a, a moon party because I've been looking forward to having a daughter who then gets her period for a very long time. <laughs> She's going to be like, about those. Ah, oh God, you're it. so embarrassing. I, I, I'm, 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 I am also looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. So your parents are immigrants, but they did give birth to you and your sisters here in the United States. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, your mother's birth experiences here in the States and how that was very different than your sister whose birth you attended, her experience being you know, induced for four days yeah. a few decades later? Because even though they were both in America, um, you know, the experience that your mother had giving birth was very different than the experience your sister had. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked because it also relates to why I, I think I felt so emboldened by my sister's birth um, and why as I've grown into an adult, you know, the, the maternal mortality rates for black women have been so shocking for me mm-hmm. um, because I, I didn't have a mother or family members who truly experienced some of that. So my mom, 
um, did have two very different births. So my mom had my sister in the late, in the mid eighties in 1986, my sister was born in Queens, New York. And she and my dad always described it as what could have been the most overwhelming thing for first time parents, right? They're in this huge hospital, really big maternal suite. And the way my dad always told the story was like, you know, they go, they go to the hospital. My mother's well into active labor is what I heard. And now I always, I'm like, wow, I wish I had asked more about what she did until then. Mm. Um, and they're like walking, walking, walking. And in those days, right, it's not like nice, quiet doors that are sweets. It's like curtain after curtain after curtain mm. is how my dad described it. And so my mom had a, uh, an unmedicated natural birth with my sister. Long, typical first birth, like I think 30, 36 hours. And you know, was really left to her own devices. Like they were admitted, but it was like, great, <laughs> let us know when you're ready to push. Um, and do you think that was because it was just such a busy kind of baby factory? Like they just didn't have the so. staff to, yeah. Yeah. And I think from what my dad really, cause my dad really has told his perception of the story more. I mean, my mom talked a ton to us about her body and her physical experience. But again, as some people, right, relate, my parents kind of always told our birth stories together which that too, I really appreciate and think is beautiful because it mm. wasn't just my mom. Like my mom wasn't dismissive of what my dad went through. And my dad also wasn't like trying to say that it was all about him. Like right. <laughs> story certainly is like, I didn't know what to do and I wasn't sure how to help. Um, and my dad wasn't present at the birth of his first child. So again, like not a new father, but a new witness mm -hmm. to birth. Um, and also now witnessing a birth of his wife, right? Like wasn't married to his first partner. So like just that in terms of our family, tell our family stories, excuse me, I think was really impactful for them. Um, but so my, so this is where like the afterbirth conversation always comes. Cause my, <laughs> when my mom would talk about my sister's birth, she often talked about a recovery. So she always would say to me, oh, that first P is the worst P of your life. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, when I had my period and when I would get cramps, she would be like, this is preparing you. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she, and again, but not dismissive. Like she wasn't like, get over it, but, right. but like normalizing that this is sure. what your uterus does. And this is how your bleed works. Um, so the story that is kind of funny and endearing to me is, you know, that was their experience and, and they, they had great care. And I think my mom was in the hospital, I think at that time, right. They were still keeping people for like three, almost four days, right. Unmedicated mm -hmm. natural birth, a woman 30 years old, healthy, fine, great. Um, and so again, this conversation about like recovery is so funny. My dad always says he was shocked that when they went home and he like said to my mom, like, okay, what do you want to do? Or like, how, like, you know, how should we like, play? my mom was like, oh, let's go to Macy's. <laughs> and my dad was like, wait, what? And he, and he was like, you just had a baby. And she was like, I feel great. Like I'm ready to get out of the house. <laughs> like, let's drop her off to my mom. What? Good to go. <laughs> wow. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure that was like a couple of days later, but still just to me, like I grew up with the positive story of not like pushing yourself in recovery or saying that like you shouldn't recover, but that, that it's subjective to every woman, right? Like the story I got from my mom was that's how her birth went. She felt really good. She was able to connect with like who she was before she became a mom, right? 
when they had me, they were living in Massachusetts. They were now homeowners. They had really settled into like the suburban life. And I was born at Salem Hospital in 92. And so the difference of the story is that um, my mother's water broke. My Her second labor was super short. It was like five hours. So her water broke at midnight. They went to the hospital. She got admitted and she's in this big, beautiful suite. And, you know, there's like the door closes and, you know, she's got a nurse who's with her like the whole time and, and no one has left since they've been checked in and she knows she wants her epidural. So she gets the epidural and they don't have to wait and it's great. And then I'm born and it's lovely and blissful and like no complications. And, you know, one of the things that we joke about in my family is there are pictures of my parents with my sister going home like when she was born and there's her 24 hour pictures, but there's no like picture of my mother in the hospital with her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my mom's, my favorite thing growing up to see was my mom and I, our first photo is in the hospital and she's in this beautiful negligee and her hair is combed and like, she's got a little lipstick on and like the OB is in the photo. (laughs) (laughs) So just like, an entirely different experience for her that really was like what she wanted and what she needed. And she, I never heard my mother say she had a bad birth or that either was horrible. It just seemed very typical for her. Like that was a story I heard and was also validated by my grandmother's stories of her own births. Like the first was kind of really long and difficult and you're figuring out all these unknown territories and so right like when we're talking about birth plans and and what people want to heal from and what is different for you I think my mom really got to have that and you know I grew up with a mom who right like had an epidural in her second birth and was happy to and was fine with it and from what she shared with me like certainly didn't sound shameful or upset at all like she was like no that was the best choice and I got it when I needed it and it was great and I did it and it was lovely. Um, so like, so lots of positive stories about birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really yeah. positive and, and willing to talk about it and willing to share and, and yeah, didn't, and also didn't feel like, I get, I didn't feel like the hospital, although the, they're part of both stories in kind of a major way, right? The distinction between like this large New York city hospital and a hospital here, Salem hospital, Um, but didn't feel like that had to do with my parents' choices and their perception and what they went through. And, and that didn't feel like, um, the reason of why it was better. It kind of upheld that. And I think that that's something I talk about with my clients, right. About like choosing your birth location, Mm -hmm. because I mean, I don't, I don't know. I had never asked my parents, like, would they have gone to Beverly or whatnot. Um, and you know, the, the hospital statistics are a little different now, but again, even I could just say growing up in Essex County, I didn't know people who were going to Boston to have babies Hmm. until I was an adult. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you went to your community hospital. Right. Right. Mm. I still wish more people did that. There's a lot of heavy marketing for those big money-making hospitals. Yeah. Just in case. Yes. Yes. And I Mm -hmm. think that 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 is something to me as a doula that's been shocking. And when people ask me, oh, what hospitals have you been to? Or are you really familiar? I'm like, 
no, I'm actually not. Because again, growing up to me, I was like, you go to Boston for an emergency, right? You go to Boston for specialized care for high risk care. Mm-hmm. Not for normal, healthy stuff. You don't go to Boston, you know, drive all the right. way to Boston to get a cavity filled. Like- right. And, and like you said, normal, healthy stuff. Birth is normal, healthy stuff. So, yeah. right. Like to yeah. me, I couldn't imagine. And, and again, like none of my mom's friends or my, my peers who had younger siblings, like some of my friends have siblings that are younger than us and their moms had their babies at Beverly and, ha- and Salem while I was growing up. And so I didn't know anybody going 30, 45 minutes away from their home to have a baby. Like that mm-hmm. just, and again, to me, I was like, do you have time to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so your I'm, sister. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sister, yeah. So I was going to say something similar. Different? So my sister, how is my sister different? Mm-hmm. How was her experience different? Like, you, I remember you oh, telling sure. me when we when we spoke a few weeks ago about how your parents were just really surprised by the whole process that kind of kind of overtook your sister's experience with the induction and the hospital. And yeah, whatnot. my sister, I should also share, is a healthcare worker. She mm-hmm. works in pharmacy, and so at the time she was a technician at Beverly Hospital and their pharmacy. And I think again, right, that understanding right there is something that people makes you feel comfortable. So again, to me, being the baby person in my family, I was thinking about really postpartum and I was like, oh, all the medical stuff is handled because she knows where she's birthing and she's well taken care of there. Um, and she and she was, I'm not saying that she, she wasn't, but the induction, yeah, was shocking because I actually didn't know what an induction was until mm-hmm. my sister had one. Um, And, you know, the conversation that I had with my dad and that I heard my dad share with either his peers or other people in my family after my nephew was born, um, excuse me, we had never had a premature baby in our family. That is something directly I heard my dad say that he was like, we've never had a premature baby. Um, I was eight pounds, five ounces when I was born, (laughs) but like weight was not a concern. Um, we didn't know small babies. We didn't know high risk or high needs babies. And how Um, many weeks was your sister's baby? He, so by his birth, I believe he was 36.5. Okay. So a little Um, early, but he was small and her, yeah, he was five pounds even Mm. and 19 inches and her induction was based on his size. Mm -hmm. Um, so earlier in her pregnancy, they had identified, that his growth, right, was falling low in the chart and okay. he was low percentile. Um, and there were kind of a few things that really like rolled up to it. And I think when we're talking about black maternal health, this is something that I really reflect on now because people often will ask me, well, do you think she had good care? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I think when she was admitted and what I saw of the providers, right, like nothing sticks out to me, especially now as a doula and thinking about how people are treated. However, I think about the prenatal care and the fact of, and this is like not, you know, at anyone's fault, um, all the conversations that I wasn't present for and again, not knowing what you don't know. So like if my sister had had a trained doula who could have said, you should ask this Mm. or you should ask why they're concerned about this and you should ask why induction is the answer for their concerns. Right. those were things I was unaware of at mm. that time. I am not going to Monday morning quarterback your sister's birth. Uh, and I am not an OB or a midwife, but at 36 weeks, a five pound baby, 
might, you know, isn't necessarily abnormal. I mean, I have three, six pound babies at 38, 30 and 39, almost 40 weeks. So, you know, that's, there is something called IUGR intrauterine growth restriction. And there's some ways to tell if it's that versus just what we call a constitutionally small baby, a baby that's otherwise healthy, but just maybe a little bit smaller. Someone's got to be the small kid on the chart. Right. Um, And that has to do with like, how's the head growing in proportion to the body? Because if a baby is truly not getting enough nourishment from the placenta, they will do what's called head sparing growth. So the, the head will continue to get bigger, but the body will stay very small because the, you know, your body's very smart. It's trying to make sure the baby's brain gets enough nourishment. So, um, so, and, and, and ultrasound isn't an exact science and there's the slippery slope argument with people who are like, well, your baby's estimated fetal weight is this, and that's close to this, which is close to this. And this would be IUGR. So, you know, who knows what exactly happened, but, um, what, what we do know is that your sister experienced iatrogenic prematurity, which was prematurity that the medical team caused by putting her into labor uh, for an induction and then delivering a premature baby. Now, that is a risk that people are willing to take if staying pregnant is truly dangerous for the mom or the baby. But maybe, who knows? Who knows the details behind that? Because that's very interesting to me hearing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that has stayed with me and I haven't actually talked about this with my sister, but again, like, you know, you asked earlier, Jeanette, about my understanding of like midwifery care. I was relieved to hear the midwife say in the, I'll never forget that first, the first day when my sister said I'm being induced, she was at an ultrasound appointment and said, I'm Mm. being induced. I'm getting set up to labor and delivery. And like my face dropped on the phone. Um, And I got there and I went to the hospital and I remember one of the nurses said, because I had all these questions and my brother-in-law and I were there and she was like, well, just so you know, the baby's not going to come tonight. And I was like, okay. But then immediately in my head, I went, so why was this such an emergency? Like, (laughs) right. (laughs) Amen. They couldn't go home and get a bag. Really? She couldn't go home and get a bag. They didn't let her leave the hospital. Like I left work, my brother-in-law left work and we were like, frantically trying to pack this bag yeah. and make sure we have everything and, and then I- they're like how long would this take I don't know it could take four or five days for all right. we know exactly oh my gosh right. and I remember the midwives then talking about you know how an induction works that now I'm so familiar with and um she had many 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 doses of the cervical mm. right there because her body wasn't responding to it and this was the very first time I ever learned about Pitocin because mm. a midwife came in and she said I know it's been 36 hours. I know everyone's tired. I know you really wanted to meet your baby. I'm not, I don't think we should give you Pitocin because your cervix is not ripened. And then I'm just going to administer this medicine that's going to make you contract and make you really uncomfortable and isn't doing its job. And again, that was the second time that I went, so why are we doing this? (laughs) Like, I was like, I'm so confused. And, and again, right. And so this is like that birth yeah. keeper gatekeeping moment of it it wasn't my place to ask that really right right um, you weren't in that role you weren't the hired doula to bounce ideas off of you were the caring sister so. yeah and I think and again talking about family dynamics I was like well I'm the baby sister who's right. pregnant what do I know 
<laughs> and you know, here's the other thing too. It's like, again, I, especially if your sister listens to this episode, I don't want her to feel like, oh my gosh, why didn't I know that? Because it's, it's your first time and you're trusting the people that are taking care of you, that they're giving you the best advice. We should be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the baby didn't need to be born again. I don't know the details. Right. However, <clears throat> I do know that from working in labor and delivery for 14 years, knowing she had a four day induction, knowing it took so many days of cervical ripening before the labor started, she's actually really lucky she had a vaginal delivery. Where I, Places that I've worked in the past, you get one dose of cervical ripening, pit started the next day, the doctor doesn't even examine the patient, the nurse is told, pull the cervidil, start the pit. And then you could, you know, contract with pit pains, we call them because they don't do anything all day long. And then they check you in the evening and say, you're still one centimeter. Well, you're not going to have this baby and it's Mm -hmm. nine o'clock. You're getting pretty tired, I bet. And so clearly your body's never going to have this baby, Mm. even though what really is, is your body wasn't ready for Pitocin. It's not that you're Mm -hmm. never going to have this baby. It's that you weren't ready Mm -hmm. for labor. And so we should just have a cesarean, right? And so it's funny because on the one hand, I'm, if I, I'm trying to put myself in your sister's shoes and I'm thinking, wow, to be so grateful that they were patient and that they took their time and that they kept on for a vaginal delivery, clearly the baby or the mom were, were not in distress, mm-hmm. which allowed them to continue. But then on the other side, I'm thinking, Jesus mm, Christ, because if the baby wasn't in distress and the mother wasn't in distress <laughs> and the baby really wasn't that small for 36 weeks, why the F did they start in the first place? But this is where so many women in this country, so many birth givers are stuck feeling grateful, mm. right? For a vaginal birth or for a healthy baby after a quote emergency cesarean. But when you unravel that ball of yarn, mm. it turns out the medical establishment caused the whole problem to begin with. And then patted themselves on the back and said, thank God you were in the hospital because if you were at home, you and your baby would have died. You know, and And it's like just so frustrating. And again, we don't have every detail about your sister's situation and her blood work and what else was going on with the baby and whatever else. But of course, of course, no, but I I think it's valid. And again, I think in having this conversation, you're so right, Melissa, because, and I think it's part of why my sister is so comfortable because now she's like, I'm good. I know what I went through. I'm fine. I'm not mad or harboring upsetness, right? Or resentment. Mm -hmm. Um, But to your point, and I think she would definitely be okay with me sharing this. One thing we do laugh about is there was a point on day three where my sister like waved the white flag and literally (laughs) looked at everybody in the room and was like, I'm done. Can I have a C-section now? Mm. And the nurses were like, it doesn't work like that. And she was like, no, but I'm done. Like, (laughs) and I don't blame her. Right. I was going to say it takes some patience on her part to go four days without saying, please just stop. Right. And again, like now as a birth keeper, I think about that because she, there was a moment where she said to me and my brother-in-law, I need the two of you to leave the room. Oh, wow. And she had a private conversation with the nurses. And wow. again, like I'm happy now. And that's right. Because I am her sister and I wasn't her doula. Mm-hmm. I would, I can admit that I don't talk to my clients the way I talk to my sister. Of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't as gentle and empathetic and patient <laughs> with her as I would be today. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm, and this is where I'm like, I, I am grateful. And I do feel that she had great care. And I think that the nurses in the room were understanding of the scenario. Um, but yeah, it's a great point, Melissa. It's a great point of like, how did we get there then? Um, And again, just to like talk to other people who maybe have gone through this, right? I was texting one of my cousins who had two children at the time and I'm like giving her all the updates, right? And she's like, well, ask this, ask this, tell the midwife this. And she said to me, I texted her and I was like, okay, she's getting ready to push. And she was like, listen, 
um, call me for a minute. So I called her and I was like, Hey, like, what's up? And she was like, I just want you to know in case nobody says anything. Right. Based on what we knew at the time, she was like, he's probably going to be really tiny. He's going to look like a little like pink chicken wing. That's what (laughs) he's going to look like a little pink chicken wing. And, and I should, he's also biracial. Um, so she, so, but she was the, right. Because she, as a mother and as a person who had had two babies was prepping me because I had never seen a birth Mm -hmm. and didn't want me to think, right. This might be a full term, big Mm -hmm. chunky baby that we're used to seeing. And he was fine and he was beautiful. And he, to this day, we all laugh about it. And my, my sister and my brother-in-law have great, great, great stories. But I was so grateful that she did tell me that because I hadn't thought of that. And I hadn't, I didn't, again, I didn't know anything about premature babies and I didn't know what happened in emergencies. And so, right, if he had been smaller or maybe Mm -hmm. not healthy, I would have been devastated and like not known what to do with that. And that's beautiful that she did that because then you were able to be calm about it you, after you got over the crying of the joy and the, <laughs> the oxytocin <emotion>. filled room, <laughs> yeah. and then you're like, oh, who's taking care of my sister? So let's talk about like that instinct of postpartum. So you were an early education teacher. So you're already ready for babies and you worked in daycare centers and took care of babies that were little, but usually they're not that little or that young. Right. So like maybe six weeks, but it'd be great if some of them would, you know, have more time before they have to go to back to work and have daycare. Yeah. But so how did all of the, your, your thoughts of like going back to work or taking care of babies at daycare, like how did that change after your nephew came? Oh man, I, this is really a family effort that I am so proud of and so grateful for, um, you know, and I want to just preface this statement I'm about to make, not shaming anyone or judging anyone for the, the state that frankly our country is oh, absolutely totally care, right and paternally my dad felt very adamantly that he didn't want my nephew to go to daycare for as long as possible and again not from a trust point of view because mm. here I was working in it yeah right yeah because for him and I think that was really from a cultural perspective right not having my mom to help my sister in her recovery I think my dad felt like this is the thing I can do this is where I can protect you. Um, so my sister and my brother-in-law were living with my dad at the time. And which again, is so great because my parents had that experience of an intergenerational home. Mm. My mother lived at home until she was 29 until she married my dad. Wow. Really. Um, and so I never thought about that. Like uh, the bond between my nephew and my dad is it's so special. It's so sweet. Um, but so my sister was home and again, they're talking about postpartum my dad was there. She had someone in the house every single day. My brother-in-law didn't have time off. Um, and then especially having, you know, having emergency time off for the four days that my sister was Mm -hmm. in the hospital. Um, I think he, I think he did take like his week vacation after the baby came and that was really Mm. it. So I was comforted knowing my sister wasn't literally in a house alone, but my dad is not the person to like change diapers and hold a baby and burp them. And right. So the, what postpartum looked like for my sister kind of shifted. My dad could go to the grocery store, help Mm -hmm. with errands, pick up dinner, make sure my sister had food, you know, bring her a snack, but wasn't, he wasn't ready to like take care of a baby. Um, Well, plus a small baby like that makes people nervous anyway. Mm. Yes. 
Yes. And so I went to see my sister every single day after work Mm. because I was like, okay, uh, have you slept? Have you taken a shower? Have you had a snack? Uh, dad, go and get us dinner and I'm going to change the sheets and I'm going to do the dishes. Right. And so, and again, it wasn't like, it wasn't even, oh, let me come by and help out just every day. My sister, and I think also my sister was just wanting me around. So every day she was like, Hey, text me after work, text me after work, text me after work. (laughs) And I wanted to see my nephew. So I would go over every day and yeah, she would take a shower or take a nap, or I would give him a bottle or, you know, even just, we would sit together and watch TV. And again, you know, she'd be like, oh, it's like nice to have someone to talk to. Mm. Right. And then of course, like my brother-in-law would come home and he wanted to spend time with the baby and catch up with my sister. And I was like, okay, what are you guys doing for dinner? Cause it's seven o'clock and everybody needs to eat and you need to go <laughs> to bed in the next two hours because this baby's going to be up. Right. Like that's where me being an educator really kicked in. Um, and, and again, culturally, I'm sure people, right, are listening and are like, maybe like, oh my God, you sound like my mother-in-law, which is awful. For us, <laughs> that was comfortable. Yeah. That was okay for me to say to my sister, lie down, sit down, stop mm-hmm. getting up. Um, I would never talk to a client like that. <laughs> ever, 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 ever. But it was okay in that comfortableness, sure. right? But it did really break my heart when I went back to work mm-hmm. and had these six week olds in my class that I loved and I knew and had their parents in my face every morning. And I was like, my sister doesn't have to do that. Mm. Right. And again, it was, it created the weirdest, most complex feeling I've ever had about a job. Oh, I can I was- imagine. I was so proud and happy to do the work I was doing. And then I felt utter guilt. Mm. And I was like, oh. And again, it really made me slow down and look at every new parent that walked in my classroom, every child's first day. And also, I think it made me a better teacher for my colleagues because, right, there were some seasoned teachers who were like oh so-and-so's mom cries every morning oh this person doesn't think we know how to change diapers and I started to realize like it can't be us versus them like right totally right and like so there were a couple teachers that I would have conversations with and be like hey so-and-so's mom isn't just like crazy and neurotic she's really sad and she's six weeks postpartum and she doesn't want to leave her baby and she doesn't actually really know us <laughs> even though we know we're good teachers she doesn't actually really know us right mm-hmm. right so like and and again not to i do not say this in a judgment way mike i went back to work i had to utilize babysitters um but but he, in a human biological way leaving your baby with a stranger is not biologically normal people should not have to do that but in a modern American society where we're so separated from our mm. families, where we need two working parents to even survive and two working parents, you're sometimes still living under the poverty line. Like, mm. you know, American parents are put in an impossible situation. I am not saying that people who put their babies in daycare, that's not normal and that's bad. It just, it breaks my heart too, mm. because, you know, it's funny. The reason why I reached out to you, Arlene, when I saw you speak um, at that Uh, the joy of black birth is because when you were talking about your family and your intergenerational family and 
it so much reminded me of the way that I grew up, even though I do not have Caribbean parents, <laughs> but my, I, not too far back in my family lineage are immigrants. And, and if you heard my grandmother's episode, when she came on and talked about her births in the 1950s and how her mother came to take care of her and all of the old remedies. And um, it, I grew up in an intergenerational household. I had a great grandmother in my life when I was a kid, which many people do not. I lived, you know, my, my mom and my sister, and I lived with my grandmother and grandfather and my uncle for quite a few years growing up. When we moved, my mother got remarried. We moved into a house next to my my stepdad's parents. So like I, I very much grew up with a, you know, you, it was just assumed that the grandparents would be there to help you and care for you and feed you dinner and get you off the bus. And, you know, all that stuff that so many Mm. modern families don't have, they don't have that. And they, they have no other option. Right. Right. And my dad and I had that conversation when my nephew was born, right. The shift in one generation, how things happen because of tragedy. I think my dad was very emotional to see me and my sister and my nephew in the living room where 25 years ago, it was me as the baby, Mm. my mother and my grandmother. My grandmother Mm. came and stayed with us for two weeks when I was born. Mm -hmm. And again, it was, there was no, and the conversation was different. Like my dad also went back to work right away, but you know, there's mixed feelings there, right? I'm sure some people would be like, well, didn't he feel bad not getting time with you? But he wasn't nervous because my grandmother was there. Mm -hmm. Right. And my aunt was around the corner, right? And so there was a cultural piece, like you're saying, and, and same thing, my mom, you know, when they came to the States, my grandmother came with her children. My grandfather was already here and they moved into an apartment building where my grandmother's sister was living with her husband and her children the floor above them. And then they moved out and they bought a duplex together. Right. <laughs> right? So like my mom always says, like she grew up with her cousins, like siblings. Right. And it was the same thing. And so, you know, when my parents moved out of New York, that, that was like shocking to my grandparents. How could you move away from us? How mm-hmm. could you be more than a, you know, forget more than a state, like more than a drive, more than two blocks. Um, and so I, really personally took that into my work Mm. and really made it my own mission to like have my parents in my classroom like me and trust me and you know and I and I'll admit now like I broke a ton of rules because like I texted parents and I took pictures on my phone not to keep but to send to parents Mm. and right and I and I wrote extra notes and I did extra projects when I could because I was so aware of like while people were happy to see their babies thriving and meeting milestones and having this socialization, I was like, there are broken hearts right, at home every night that, that I get to do this and they don't. Mm. I have a feeling this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship between us, Arlene, because yes. I am also a rule breaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I hope none of my former directors are listening. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I like, I like order. I like rules, but you know, sometimes the rules don't make sense and you have to do what's right. right for the client. Yep. You know, you know? <laughs> yep. absolutely. Absolutely. All righty. That is the end of episode one with Arlene Lammy. And I hope you enjoyed her storytelling and that you won't miss the part two of um, this episode, which we've divided. So go here, episode 64, and you'll be able to hear Arlene even more. And we hope you enjoy that. But thanks for listening.